What's your pleasure? Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm Postdoctoral Research Associate at the Center, and today we're bringing you a fourth episode in our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a tumultuous year, and many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate what's worth saving in a post-2020 world. Today, we're joined by Edith Vanderboom, Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education and the Practice of Pedagogy here at the Institute for Christian Studies. Dr. Vanderboom is also Director of ICS's MA in Educational Leadership, a graduate program designed to equip teachers and administrators working in Christian education to develop their skills as educators and leaders. Dr. Vanderboom brings to her roles at ICS a wealth of experience in school and classroom settings in both public and Christian school systems, and we were excited to hear what she's been thinking about in the wake of 2020 from her unique perspective on teaching and the philosophy of education. Let's get started. This past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we have seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year have affected our ways of thinking, and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in a faith tradition. Today we're continuing the conversation about Christian faith and thought in the wake of 2020 by turning our attention specifically to the world of education with our guest Edith Vanderboom, Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Education and the Practice of Pedagogy here at ICS. Edith, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the Critical Faith Podcast. Welcome. Yeah, no problem. So the question I want to ask first is, is how, how would you describe yourself as an educator? 
are there any key ideas, principles, and, and theoretical approaches uh, that stand out in terms of what's shaped your own teaching and, and leadership? Mm -hmm. So as an educator, I would describe myself as one who's passionate about learning. And that comes from my own experience as a student. As a student, I didn't have this amazing experience where learning came easy to me or that I got great marks or did really well in school. In fact, I just really struggled in school. Learning, learning was hard. And it's actually within that context that I learned to become passionate about learning because I learned how to do it. It took me a while, but it did come and it, it all came together. So as an educator, I want that experience for, for my students. I want students to go into the classrooms and have a positive experience and being able to take from where they're at and, and learn from there. And so I like to see classrooms that are inclusive environments, classrooms where everyone feels welcome and valued no matter who they are and no matter what their skills are. I, I just want everybody to feel like they belong. And so as an educator, it's really important for me to think about what are best practices in terms of teaching and learning because over the years, we have learned a lot about how the brain works and how best to teach students in different circumstances. Some students uh, come to us with learning disabilities. Some come with home lives that are, are difficult. And all of these things play a part in learning in the classroom. And so thinking about and learning about what these best practices is really important to me. I believe uh, that each student should be thought of as an individual. And what I mean by that is that I think it's really important for teachers to know their students, who they are as people, uh, what their lives are like, and who they are as a student academically. What are the skills that they have? And again, all of these things play a part in how do we learn and, and as for educators, how do we teach? So over the years, I've done a lot of research around how do I make this work in a classroom? Uh, the beginning of my teaching career, I was a special education teacher and I worked a lot with individual students and small groups of students. And that was a very rewarding experience. But there was always this tension between the students wanting to be back in their classrooms and needing the extra help that they that they needed in order to be successful in learning what was asked of them. And so differentiated instruction became an important piece for me because it allowed us to keep students in the classroom with their classmates, but also to provide for them some of that extra support that they needed. And it taught teachers how to do this efficiently so that they were working with students meeting their individual needs, but being able to do that with a whole room of, of students. The other pedagogy that I find very helpful is inquiry-based learning, where students are presented a problem and it's based on that problem that the learning comes about. There are different ways of going about that 
And I love that because it gives a variety and choice to both the teacher and to the students in the classroom. Another thing that I'm thinking about uh, more recently are classrooms as communities of grace. And I think that's a, a new phrase for me, but it really comes out of the idea that each classroom should exemplify the body of Christ. And I think this is a really important part of, of our Christian school classrooms. Each student comes into the classroom with their own strengths and their own areas of needs. But the reality is we need each other. Every student contributes to that body. Every student contributes to being part of that community. And together we are better than the separate parts that we each represent. Uh, and so that synergy is a beautiful thing when you see a classroom where students are valued because of who they are, but they're also valued because of who they are in context of the other students and their teacher in the classroom. So within my own teaching and leadership, I value providing choices. In our MAEL program here at the ICS, uh, one of those choices is within timing of when teachers can actually take courses, uh, whether that be in the summer or in the fall, whether they take three courses per year or whether they take just one per year. So in my own teaching and learning, I think it's really important to provide choices for students. Uh, one example of that is in my courses. I often have three, four, maybe even five different choices for students to think about in terms of which project they would like to complete. And uh, oftentimes that last option is choose your own. So if a student has an idea that I haven't thought of, that would be a great way for them to exemplify their learning in the course, then I wanna hear about it. And I want them to be able to use their gifts and talents to develop something that perhaps even I as the instructor didn't think about. And so I think that's real, a really important piece in our education system. The other thing that I like to think about is learning together with my students. So even though I may be the instructor in a class, I believe that, again, as the body of Christ, I don't hold all the answers. It's students in my classroom who also bring important aspects to the learning. Uh, to our classroom. And so together with my students, I want to learn with them. And then I also believe in a variety of learning opportunities. So just because we're in education, I don't feel like we only should be reading educational sources. I think that we can learn a lot from different people uh, who may not be educators. And I think that's a beautiful way of learning and seeing the world as a community uh, of not just specialists, but of, of generalists, uh, where we, we all bring different things to the whole. One of our central questions in this series concerns the ways that many of our most familiar political concepts need to be rethought for a post-2020 world, given their inability to address many of the historical and structural forms of injustice that have become central to public dialogue in the last little while. So we're especially eager to hear your take on these issues, given your concrete experience of the realities of the classroom. 
So how have you seen the increased awareness of structural racism and related issues making its way into the classroom? How has it shaped your approach to education? And how has this been shaping your thinking, for example, about race, diversity, and, and multiculturalism? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. When I think of these issues, I actually start thinking about the kindergarten classroom. Uh, I, I remember, you know, not so many years ago when the only dolls that we would have in our kindergarten classrooms were little white dolls. And yet the students within our classroom uh, were not all white students. There were students of many different colors. And it was really important that we thought about that. And it was important that uh, little children, even three and four years old, would see uh, even dolls or playthings that look like them, that had the same skin color of, as they did. Uh, even with crayons, there used to be, uh, Crayola used to create crayons that were skin color, but it was only one person's color of skin. It was kind of white, but it didn't accommodate for uh, so many other variations of skin color. And now Crayola has done a good job of creating multiple skin color crayons for kids to use when they're drawing pictures of themselves. So those are just some real, yeah, simple and yet very real issues that we were having. And there's another example that I have. I used to work in a Christian school and we used to have chapels once a week. And there was a song that we sang during chapel called uh, Walk Like an Egyptian. And it was a lot of fun and it had great actions and the students really enjoyed it. But there was one day where one of the teachers said that her student wasn't participating in the actions. And she talked to him afterwards and said, what's up? You know, why are you not participating in this song and doing the actions? And, and this student was Egyptian. And he said to her, I'm Egyptian and I do not walk like that. And so without even knowing it, it was, yeah, it wasn't respecting who he was in terms of his culture. Even though it was meant well, uh, it, it was insensitive. The school that I worked in as well uh, started celebrating Black History Month, but only a couple years ago. So, so this is new. Uh, even our work with students around teaching them more about Indigenous perspectives in education. Indigenous peoples have been in our country way before we got here as immigrants, and yet we have just started introducing the idea of, you know, who are our Indigenous brothers and sisters, and uh, what is their history only in the last number of years. And uh, we're actually just starting to begin with uh, children's books, where the whole story of the experiences in residential schools is being shared. So that's an area, another area that we really need to, to grow in. A number of our schools have students who are uh, English language learners. And uh, for many years, we used to call these students uh, English as second language learners. And I, I think that was really limiting because the reality is that most people around the world actually speak more than one language. And I think that for us to think that them coming to Canada and learning English 
that that would be their second language is really limiting in terms of what we know about these students who are coming into our classrooms. Uh, we also used to say to students, uh, if you are coming to Canada, if you're coming to learn English, then you are expected only to speak English. And we do not want to hear you speaking any other language. And we've come to learn that that is actually not great pedagogy. That's something that uh, tells students that, you know, their first language isn't valued. And uh, that's not what we want to do. And research has been done to show that students who do speak more than English uh, in terms of a learning environment and have an opportunity to use their, their first language or one of their other languages still continue to be able to learn English well. And so I think that's another change that we've had just very recently in terms of remembering to value people's differences, not just academically, but racial. Uh, in English uh, immersion classes, there are some changes that are coming because the research does show that it's actually more helpful for students to know that their native language is valued and important. And that can be part of the immersion process in terms of students being able to learn the new language. So yeah, again, it's an area that it continues to develop. And I think we need to continue to look at the research and see what they're finding about language learning. But even valuing a student in terms of, you know, for example, uh, I know you're from Korea and you speak Korean. Uh, yeah, can you teach us a little bit more about that? Because I think even within languages, there are things that we can learn from each other. And I think we have to be open to that. If, if I'm in an immersion class and all I think about is how I need to teach you English, then half of that relationship is missing because there are things that my students need to teach me and they need to teach their, their fellow students. Because if, if it's not reciprocated, then we're really not living out that body of Christ. We're not really valuing each other's differences. And, and that is really an important piece. So I'm teaching a course this coming fall called Cultivating Learning Communities of Grace. And I'm really excited about it. Within this course, we're going to be considering racial justice, socioeconomic factors, uh, indigenous perspectives, sexual orientations and gender, restorative justice and responsive classrooms. I think that a lot of these topics are ones that we haven't spent a lot of time looking at and talking about. And I think it's a really important part of being an educator and actually knowing our students. I'm hoping that we can talk about questions like how do racism and other forms of oppression underline uh, achievement gaps and alienation within our schools? Or how can our school culture be a vehicle for social change? So these are our exciting topics. And I certainly don't have all the answers for these questions, but I think these are going to be really valuable conversations in this course. So I'm wondering if you can say more about whether there are any specific pedagogical practices or approaches that need to be challenged or rethought in, in this context. Yeah. Carol Dweck 
from Stanford University has done a lot of research around the growth mindset. And what that means is if a person thinks that if they work hard, they will make improvements in their learning. So uh, if I work hard, I can become smarter is a growth mindset. If someone thinks, you know, I was born the way I was born and these are the gifts and talents that I have and I'm not going to get any better at this, that is considered a fixed mindset. So within our classrooms, we really need to encourage students to have a growth mindset. Uh, just because something's hard for you now doesn't mean that you can't get better at it. So you need to continue to work at something. And yes, for some students, it takes longer than for others. But if you continue to work at something, you will get better at it. You will continue to grow in that area. Uh, I think of myself even as a student uh, when I was a young child, uh, I had an experience in a class where our teacher rated each of us and uh, he thought he was doing us a favor, perhaps uh, thinking that, you know, rating us would help motivate us so that we'd all want to be like number one in class. But my experience was that I was rated number 26 out of 27. Uh, because I, I wasn't doing well academically. And at recess time, as you may have assumed, uh, in this grade five class, pretty much everybody shared their ranking. And the boy in my class who had ranked 27 out of 27 told everybody that he was 26. And so the students came to me and said, oh, you're the stupidest one in our class. You're number 27. And I was trying to support myself and say, no, that's not true. I'm 26, which seems ridiculous because it really has nothing to do with where you're ranked in a class. It has to do with who you are as a learner. And my mom was actually, you know, a great advocate for me. And she every day would always say, you know, just do your best. That's all you can do and just do your best. And so she knew about this growth mindset, I think before Carol Dweck figured it out. And uh, that was so helpful to me. And so even though I did not do well in school uh, as a child, I learned how to do well in school uh, as I grew up and into adulthood. So it's quite sad when students live in a home where parents have a fixed mindset. That's challenging for them. But the reality is, that within school context, that can change. So even though a child might have a fixed mindset at home, they could have a growth mindset at school. I was involved in a research study uh, a number of years ago where we looked at fixed and growth mindsets in students. And one of the results of that research was that students who were new to the school had a higher tendency to have a fixed mindset versus students that had been in our school for at least a couple years. Almost every single one of them had a growth mindset. So it was quite clear that the teachers had a big impact on a student's uh, mindset in terms of whether it would be fixed or growth within the school. And so that's a really uh, important piece for teachers to understand and to work with. 
Of course, it's always important too to encourage parents to think about their child in terms of a growth mindset as well. Uh, but sometimes we're a little bit more limited in what influence we have in that regard. What resources are available for educators who want to respond to calls to end systemic racism in their teaching? And also, what resources do you think are still needed or are still lacking? Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple of books that are actually quite old. In 2000, David Smith and Barbara Carville wrote a book called The Gift of the Stranger, Faith, Hospitality, and Foreign Language Learning. And they really looked at this whole foreign language learning piece. And within that context, again, they were invitational. They are suggesting that we need to learn from our students and not just teach our students. And I think even though that book is specifically around teaching foreign languages, I think it's really applicable to all sorts of different subject areas. Uh, in 2009, David Smith also wrote a book called uh, Learning from the Stranger, Christian Faith and Cultural Diversity. And again, there's a little bit of a focus in terms of foreign language learning, but I think the context in that is applicable to all different subject areas. And so I think those are some really early pieces uh, that I think are helpful to educators. In terms of what is lacking, unfortunately, I, I think that we haven't seen a whole lot of um, yeah, writing done in this area. There are bits and pieces, um, but not, not, not a ton of, of writing that I would say, oh, this is a classic, or this is really, really great. Uh, I have to dig a lot in terms of articles uh, I think we can find a lot there. I also think it's helpful to look at resources that are not necessarily education-based. And so there is uh, an author named uh, Jamar Tisby who just recently uh, published uh, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And full disclosure, it is on my bookshelf, but I have not read it yet but it has been highly recommended to me and I am looking forward to, to reading that. He also has another book that he only published a couple of years ago as well, The Color of Compromise, A Truth About the American Church's Complacency in Racism. And although it is uh, written for the church, I think uh, we can learn from it even in our schools. And yeah, I, I think to really help students uh, I think we have to actually be genuinely curious. We need to invite students to share from their own cultures and their own experiences. We really need to have, uh, encourage them to have a voice and, and to be in a posture of, I'm interested. I want to learn from you. I do not have all the answers and you have uh, something that I need to learn here. And I think that's a really, really important piece. I think that we also need to be aware that there are things that we are not aware of. We, we don't know everything. And to have that openness to continue to learn, I think is an important piece for educators. And I think that that whole mindset and that whole 
uh, curiosity and interest. When you model that in a classroom, your students learn how to do that as well. So they will start doing that with each other. So, and then finally, I guess I, I'm going back to growth mindset. We need to have a growth mindset about social justice, systemic racism, class and gender issues. We have so much to learn. I know it's 2021, but we still have so much to learn. And I think we, we need to be lifelong learners and to be looking Again, having that posture of teach me, uh, I want to learn more about these things. How have current discussions about injustice and racism affected your thoughts and hopes about the MAEL program and, and for ICS as an institution of Christian higher learning? Yeah, so of, of course, you know, we have that course that I'm, I'm teaching in the fall, Cultivating Learning Communities of Grace, which I'm really excited about. But I believe that these conversations need to happen in every single course that we teach. Uh, I, I don't think it should be a separate topic. I think it needs to be woven through all of the different conversations that we have, because I think it is part of who we are and, and our culture. And I think that that's foundational to the rest of the learning that we do. I'm trying to do a, more reading myself and, and trying to learn more, but also trying to learn to ask the right questions uh, of my students, because I know that the students that come into our program have expertise in different areas. And so then in a certain way, every course is a little bit molded according to who attends the class or who's part of the class. And, and that makes each class uh, or course quite, quite special because there's always different people contributing to the context of that class. Uh, practically thinking, I am actually really excited because I've been having conversations with educators in different countries. Uh, specifically, uh, there are some educators who I've spoken to recently uh, in Belize and Guatemala who are very interested in uh, education in the same ways that we are. And when I talk to them about, you know, what are you struggling with? You know, where are you at in terms of education? They're, they're struggling and they're thinking about the same things that we are here in Canada. And yet they have a different perspective. And so I'm hoping that some of these students will join our classes. And again, in that way, they will be contributing to the conversation and we'll all be able to learn from each other through these conversations. Um, I want to take a posture of learning more about injustice, racism, and I want to start with myself uh, and what I do and what I do not do. I think sometimes when we learn about these issues, it's very easy to talk about other people and what other people should do. But I think this learning really needs to start with ourselves. Uh, I know that I have made mistakes and I know that I am continuing to make mistakes. And I want to become more aware of what those are so that I can make those adjustments so that I can do things in a way that are just, uh, that do show mercy and that show kindness and love. I want to be a person, an educator who has a growth mindset. I know I don't know everything I need to know around these issues. 
and I want to learn more. And I know I can if I have this growth mindset. So I think that's a really important piece as well, that I am available and I'm ready to learn. And so I guess this is a great time too. So if anybody's listening to this podcast and has anything to share that they think would be helpful, uh, as I too am on this journey of learning more, uh, please feel free to contact me and, and let me know what that is. I'm, I'm always interested in learning more. Edith, it's a pleasure to have you join us on the Critical Faith Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun the movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Andrew, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure uh, this time is has to do more with what I in, intend to take up as a pleasure, um, which is to read or reread parts of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. This book came up oh, a little bit, yeah, in... Uh, in the class I'm teaching at ICS, uh, we were, we've been talking about Kristeva, and she, she has this idea of revolutionary poetic language, which is language that shows how the body kind of bursts forth and decenters the, 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 the subject who speaks clear language. So she, and she thinks that Joyce, and especially, she, well, she thinks mostly Joyce is Finnegan's, Finnegan's Wake, but I'm, I'm, I know more his, uh, his work, Ulysses. But anyways, she thinks Joyce is a good example of this kind of poetic language because of the way that his writing shows how the, the body breaks through and disrupts, um, you know, well-formed speech, basically. Mm. And so, we, you know, we talked about that a little bit in, in our class, and it brought me back to when I was first sort of gripped by the, by the text of Ulysses when I was studying English um, years ago as an undergraduate student. Um, and I really loved the way that that book sort of broke the rules on what it means to be a novel, mm. in that, it, you know, it doesn't have a single narrative voice, like there's no single overarching perspective or, or narrator that governs the text. Um, he also doesn't use quotation marks, so there's no, mm -hmm. there's no signal distinction between what the, what the quote-unquote narrator says and what the character in the, in the story says. Um, so mm. a lot of devices like that that really break down our expectations of what a novel should be. I really love the way that, that Joyce's text was... I always wanted to describe it as cinematic. Mm. Um, it's, it's more like a, like a film than it is... A piece of writing because he really tries to show you what's happening rather than tell you and so mm. your 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 task as a reader isn't just to read the sentences but to try to imagine the situation that's happening and try to see what's actually going on in the text as as the words are are depicting it um mm. so anyways that that's i, I read it i read it we looked at a few a few passages from from the text in in the class but it's really got me wanting to go back to that and read read more of it over the over the summer. Well, some might call that a masochistic pleasure, but I guess um, so, yeah. <laughs> a pleasure nonetheless. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, my pleasure is is maybe less masochistic, who knows. Um, but uh I've mentioned on this podcast before that I really like covers, um cover songs. There are a couple ones that in the last couple months I've been really drawn to. One is by um, Scary Pockets, and it features Madison Cunningham, who's a folk artist, who she's really cool. She's connected to people like Chris Thiele, who's the host of um, 
a prairie home companion which is centered around all these people that's just sort of like this new bluegrass revival but in this uh song with uh, scary pockets um it's more funk that she's going for and the particular song is by wings it's called um arrow through me uh and it it's great it's really really good you can watch on youtube too because it's it's recorded live off the floor um and i didn't know about wings which is a paul mccartney um side project uh but which danielle is shaking her head at me uh in shame and disbelief uh which i deserve in this case this is my masochistic pleasure i guess um but uh yes it's really really good i recommend checking it out yeah the other one is by james blake who actually has some awesome covers including maybe my favorite cover of all time which is his cover of um joni mitchell's a case of you um but in his new album of covers uh, he has a few good ones but one in particular that strikes me and that is stevie wonders never dreamed you'd leave in summer um that has been rolling around in my head for a couple months um so i highly recommend checking those two songs out um and uh hopefully you can derive some pleasure in the ways that i do that's it for our show this week Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask our friends and colleagues to reflect on political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in learning more about the MAEL program or in joining one of the remote courses Edith mentioned on offer this August or starting in the fall, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email Edith at evanderboom at icscanada.edu or you can email our registrar, Elizabeth R.S., at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Edith as at edithvdboom, you can follow me as at Mark Standish, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast help people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.